Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Lainey. It's Joanna. Welcome to our bonus Crazy Rich Asians episode of Show Your Work. We're here, as promised. But also, like, this is the moment that brought us here to do a midsummer episode. Yes. And since it is midsummer, um, a disclaimer right off the top of the show it is midsummer storming here in Toronto. We have these, like, flash crazy thunderstorms with, like, big thunder, big lightning. So you may be hearing some of that. In the podcast. How very dramatic. Right. Which is exciting. Um, I thought you were going to do a much more topical disclaimer. Uh, You know, we talked about coming for a bonus episode at some point during the summer, and it became evident that this was the moment and the phenomenon that we were going to talk about, which is super exciting. Uh, I can't wait to discuss it. You can't wait to discuss it. Uh, We can tally up our collective totals of how many times we've seen the movie. (laughs) I have seen it three times and counting. I probably will see it four times by the end of this week. Right. So by the time this podcast posts, you may have seen it a fourth time, yes? Correct. I have seen it twice, uh, which is not that impressive considering everybody I know, up to and including my 75-year-old father, saw it opening weekend. Yes. Uh, So I need to pick up the slack. Yes. Our friend Lorella, for example, I think is like, same as me, has seen it three times. Correct. And saw it twice in the same weekend on opening weekend. Right. Which not even I can boast of. No. I mean, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of catching up to be had, but I have this one disclaimer that I have to add in. There are all kinds of characters and actors and exciting things we're going to talk about. I have a mental block about the character Astrid, who I love, who when I get super excited, I somehow am like, you know, Adele, that character. (laughs) Her name's not Adele. It is Astrid. I have a little visual cue that says Astrid uh, that I'm using to keep myself focused. Uh, But... Turn it around for me. I'm going to Instagram story this. Well, I was going to send it... I I was going to... Uh, Instagram it with you in the picture so that people would know. But uh, here's me with Astrid. Okay. Guys, if I make a mistake because I'm so excited, please know that I understand the character's name is Astrid. Somewhere there's an Adele just lurking around the edges. Just bear with me. Okay. Well, Astrid, Adele aside, ready? Oh, I'm so ready. Okay, so we've decided to start off the podcast about Crazy Rich Asians in like a broad sense, broad meaning what genre of film or whatever category it fits into, since, of course, we are in the summer of the renaissance of the rom-com. Right, right. Like, things are happening, rom-coms are happening. The reason I haven't seen Crazy Rich Asians more times as of this airing 
is because we've all been so deep into all the boys I've loved before. <laughs> Peter Kavinsky. If you have not watched <laughs> To All the Boys I've Loved Before, guys, it's 90 minutes. Take too long doing your makeup. Call in late to work. Say you have a doctor's appointment. It, it's a delight. Yes. Um, but it is kind of the rom-com appetizer in a, as you say, a rom-com renaissance summer. Yep. Uh, but Crazy Rich Asians was always going to be the crown jewel. I think so. I want to back up just a little bit because you have been so excited for this movie for like calendar months. How long? Oh, 30? (laughs) That is actually longer than I thought you were going to say. 30 months, you're not a contrarian or a grump the way I am, but 30 months is a long time to like keep it up for one movie. Were you nervous before you saw it? Terrified. You were terrified. Yeah, terrified. I I think all of us who love books are terrified of what the movies are going to look like, no matter what the book is. This is over and above representation and inclusion. You just love something For example, everybody out there, if you're not Asian, what you can relate to in terms of book adaptations is Harry Potter. Do you remember how we were feeling about like, oh, they're making it into movie. Will I I recognize all these characters? Who have they cast as Sirius Black? Who have they cast as Dumbledore? How are they going to give us the great feast? I mean, anytime you adapt a story that you've read and haven't visualized like actual visual actual visualization and they put it onto screen, you have concerns. I think it has to be about a beloved book, right? Yes. It's not about something that is like, oh, hey, who knew this used to be a book? But uh, Little Women, which we discussed on Show Your Work, the Pride and Prejudice remakes, Big Little Lies, these are the ones that people already have kind of their heart and soul into that you get nervous about. But I... Yeah, I I was thinking about you the first time we saw it, which I believe was the first time you saw it. Yes. And wondering how anxious you must have felt about the characters that you'd been carrying around for so long. My anxiety didn't have to do with the fact that I thought it would suck or that, you know, they would completely mangle the story. My anxiety was I was most worried that it would be flat, Mm. that Mm -hmm. it wouldn't pop. That it would be like, oh, a B. Right. Right? Uh, yeah, like a movie, a nice movie. Yeah. But not like what it is, which is uh, the first time I saw this movie, it was in a small screening with about 30 other people, including you. And it was a party. It's yes. a ride. It's so, so much fun. And it has that feeling that you have at the end of a movie where you kind of want to clap, but it's really embarrassing to clap at a movie because you know there's nobody there to hear it, but you want to clap anyway. And it's also the kind of movie that makes you want to, and I'm not this person, but like movies come along where you do want to shout at the screen and you want to say like, what? Yeah. Who? Um, Or you want to repeat what they say to you. There are movies that make you feel that. And this is one of them. At least it was for me. And I know it was for you because the second time we went to go see it, which was just last Friday, 
you became that person. You were like talking out loud. You kept, every time Michael came on screen, you were telling him to fuck himself. I gave the finger <laughs> to the movie screen a whole lot uh, the second to time To Michael. Around. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, the guy in front of me did not love that. No. <laughs> Uh, nor did he love, yeah, when oh, we were- you got a turnaround in glare. Yeah, I think I might have been kicking his seat in excitement, though. Yes. So, you know, he might be forgiven for that. But this is the kind of movie that it is. There are uh, the visual equivalent of what you would have called jumpy claps once upon a time. Yeah. There are just moments of elation. There are. And, you know, you took it back a little bit, but I'm going to take it back, too, because the reason why we wanted to open here- in the rom-con genre is because this is something we've been discussing in Show Your Work. Consistently, we've talked about how supposedly it's died on the big screen, but that it's been revived in different ways and different permutations on the small screen. And what it would take to get, what kind of work would be required to get the rom-com going again, to fire up the rom-com engine at the movies. And we have been seeing that at the movies and on Netflix over the last, you know, year or so. Credit to the big sick. Yeah, absolutely. Like, look, the kind of thing that happened was rom-coms were happening, but the giant resurgence of mainly comic book movies, was uh, really surging and the established movie stars who might once have appeared in rom-coms were like, hey, if they're going to make uh, big popcorn movies more layered, more nuanced, whatever, I can work there, make five, ten times the money and still retain my fans. So I guess I'll do that. Case in point, Margot Robbie. Mm -hmm. Like, in a different time, Margot Robbie would have been a rom-com star. Yeah. Uh, instead, she plays Harley Quinn and then takes her money and produces movies like I, Tanya that she cares about. That's where the rom-com went. The resurgence of the rom-com, how do we get people to go to rom-coms, is to stop casting Gerard Butler and, and start yep. telling stories about people who haven't had these stories told about them. Right? Without deviating from those beats and the formulaic tropes. Is that redundant? No, I don't. I mean, tropes has a negative permutation. Okay. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, the patterns and formulas yes. that make a rom-com work. So you mentioned The Big Sick. Yeah. Where, yeah, we had not seen a leading man who was uh, an Asian-American Pakistani male in yeah. that context before. Uh, Love, Simon. We hadn't seen a gay teen in that context in a rom-com before. But the formula that exists in both are, this is, yes, he happens to be Pakistani, but they meet, they kind of have a breakup, but there's like a big crisis. Yep. They meet cute. There's some cuteness. There's a yeah. small crisis. There's a big crisis. They yeah. might not make it. They make it. There. Check, check, check. Formula, formula, formula. Uh, in Love, Simon, formula, high school. Yep. <laughs> but same thing applies, yes. right? Like, here are the things in high school I don't think I can get over. Yeah. Oh, wait, maybe I can because of this person. Hey, hey, yeah. fun and games. Uh-oh, big crisis. I can't get over it. Secret love notes. Secret identities going back and forth. Major, like, rom-com formula there. Uh, major Shakespearean formula. Major like Shakespearean, Like, it's been yes. there 
from exactly. time immemorial, but same exact thing. It works in the end. He just happens to be a young boy who is approaching his moment of coming out. I mean, we haven't been doing this podcast in a long while, and it's early in this podcast, but it's time, you know, to bring out one of the things that we say all the time, which is specificity is universal. There is nobody who's going to watch a story about a young gay man, gay boy uh, in high school and not be able to relate even if they are a negative five on the Kinsey scale. Right. Uh, There's nobody who watches The Big Sick and is like, well, I can't relate to this because everybody's overbearing parents are overbearing in the same way even if the details are different. And that brings us to this story. Yes. And the universality of Crazy Rich Asians. The universality. And a lot of it is, you know, in that rom-com formula. That is what we wanted to identify here. Like, let's start. Let's just start identifying what is familiar and universal about this story. No matter what the color of the skin of the lead male and the lead female and where this story is set, what are the baseline storylines and beats that are familiar to anybody who loves these kinds of movies? Right. So uh, early on, uh, five minutes into the movie, uh, we bring the couple on stage, right? The couple who's going to make it in the end. And we see the reason why they might not make it. In some cases, it's because, I don't know, Freddie Prinze Jr. is like, no, I would never look at her like that. Yeah. Or in the case of Crazy Rich Asians, it's because, oh, there's a whole network of people who are gossiping about her and saying she's not good enough or whatever. Five minutes into the movie, you get the worry. Here's the couple. Here's why they're cute. In this case, it's about food. Yeah. And the worry. They might not make it. Right? They they might not make it. Right. Right. That's a basic. Um, Another basic is here's why she's awesome. Uh, I'm reminded in the scene where right off the top of the movie, spoilers abound from this point on, by the way, right off the top of the movie, we meet Rachel. She is, uh, surprise, an economics professor, and Mm -hmm. she kicks ass at poker. Yeah. And we're like, oh, this is why she's awesome. Yeah. It is an exact replica of the scene at the beginning of My Best Friend's Wedding, when Julia Roberts is, you know, being flurried to as a food critic and is like, I'm writing it up as inventive, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. We've watched them do their thing. They are awesome. We're rooting for them. It's also the exact same scene in another Julia Roberts rom-com, Pretty Woman, where she gets into the car, he can't drive it, and she's like, oh, I can change gears no problem because women's feet are smaller than men's feet, and here's how you drive this amazing sports car. And he looks over at her and he's like, oh, you're awesome. It corners like it's on rails. (laughs) So this is actually, uh, to throw some tech at you, this is often called the save the cat moment. This is a little bit of a, it might not exactly be save the cat. Save the cat refers to you will root for a character no matter how bad they are if they save a cat from a tree, right? Yeah. So you want to see your character save the cat early on. Be awesome in some way, shape, or form. I watched Despicable Me on the weekend, uh, in case you didn't guess that I was not in charge of the movie choices, and there's a real clear save the cat. 
early and often. It's a real trigger. Okay, this is somebody we like and want to root for. So already we've established in the first five minutes, we've checked off how many formulaic, you know, uh, as you said, um, uh, she is, this is like a problem. They have a problem. We are going to be worried about them. She's awesome. She can do this, that, the other. She can school people in poker. This is in the first five minutes. It's already very comfortable. You know what you're in for at this point. It's just that the people look different. And we haven't even gotten to like Cinderella yet. But this is the thing. I mean, this is, uh, we have a, a segment later on called the elephant in the room. But this is kind of the elephant in the room. This was the big debate. Are people going to go see an all Asian cast? I am for the one person who's listening who doesn't know this, not Asian. You are Asian. I honestly am not trying to virtue signal but I didn't walk into the movie and go, oh, they look different. Here's how they appear immediately. They appear as people. And this is the difference, right? That in cinema in the past, not just for Asians, but for all kinds of people of color, for LGBT people, et cetera, they've been played as other. They've been played as different, yeah. right? And these guys play as they're just living their lives. They're a rom-com couple. Yes. The other thing that I was going to say that is a real like tick box right away is uh, the witty banter. Early on, they're debating about dessert. Oh, you want my dessert? Oh, you want his dessert? Oh, yeah. you but 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 but. I'm going to give you a little. You're not going to give me a little. It's Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger early on. Yeah. Like nobody's giving up ground. Yes. It's Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey in the bar. Yeah. In How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. It's very familiar. Yes. Because these people are living the same lives as everybody else. That's right. And then more. More formula. More familiar beats. Now we get to, okay, they are after dessert, after thriller, after dessert, after flirting over dessert, boom, they're on the plane. They're heading home. They're heading to Singapore. Right. So we're going into a different world, right? Yeah. So just to keep it going… We're going into a different world. We're in Pretty Woman. We're going to the Regent Beverly Wilshire. What is this world? Yes. If we're, go if we're in Cinderella, we're going to the ball, right? Oh, right. my God. The castle, the this, the whatever. Yeah. It's, we could keep going. Uh, if we, I mean, we could keep getting really specific. And I don't want to because we'd be here for a long time. Because, again, this movie checks off all these rom-com beats. But you mentioned the Regent Beverly Wilshire. Um, the elevator stands in for the plane in Crazy Rich Asians, right? She goes to the hotel. She's like, oh, my God, what the fuck is this place? She doesn't know how to go to the hotel. She doesn't know how to open the hotel room door. Rachel goes onto the plane, and she's like, uh, what is I, – I, I don't know. I have my Tupperware here. What? We're in first class. There's a bed here. Look at these pajamas. These are the equivalencies that we're drawing here. Now, it's interesting because just at that point – I don't know if this is a trope or not. We could just sit here and be like, as you say, here's the pattern, here's yeah. the match, here's the match. And I know that the screenwriters uh, probably did that down to a T. But when Rachel and Nick are on the plane uh -huh. and are in the pod and he starts saying, oh, it's just a travel perk of my family or whatnot, that's when I started to be mad at him. And I'm mm -hmm. not mad at Nick overall in this movie. He's yeah. not Michael. Um, I never gave… <laughs> You never yelled, fuck you, at Nick. No. Nor did I give him the finger in the middle of a crowded movie theater. But 
Uh, I don't know if this is specific to this movie Mm -hmm. or if it's a trope that we do see elsewhere. This is where I start to be mad at him because he, out of boydom or privilege or something else, he doesn't give Rachel the full lay of the land. Now, of course, he can't or we wouldn't have a movie. If she was all prepared for this, we wouldn't get to see her be the fish out of water and be us, by the way. She is as wide-eyed as all of us walking into this world, right? Yeah. But is that thing where the prince, the person, starts to commit a sin of omission, is that something that exists across the board? Ah, well, do we have to go through our rom-com catalog? I mean, it exists in To All the Boys I've Loved before, for sure. Yep. Which, I can we spoil it at this point? I mean, if you haven't watched it at this point, but I mean... You're talking about uh, Peter and, you know, what he is hiding from Lara Jean about his relationship with Jen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but hiding is the operative word, right? Uh, to go back to Pretty Woman, it, I guess Richard Gere is hiding that he is... He says that he's smarting from a breakup. So that doesn't really apply, I suppose. Uh, I suppose he's hiding that he could be, you know, convinced to love. Uh, But that's not quite the same thing. Like that she doesn't expect to fall in love and neither does he. But he could be convinced if it was the right woman. I mean, you have a sort of formula or sort of match in, let's say, uh, You've Got Mail. So Tom Hanks... When he begins to pursue Meg Ryan, like after he finds out who she is and he realizes he's in love with her, he makes her fall in love with him before he tells her that he's the guy. Um, I can't remember the address, but it's like NY592 or whatever. It's his address, right? Right. Um, So there, that, that is the concealment. Sure. It happens in My Best Friend's Wedding, again, where uh, Michael… What is it with this name? (laughs) Um, Where Michael is hiding from Julianne that he has feelings or has had feelings for her that he never acted on, even though she kind of knows. We see that thing. That's the part where we are with the heroine, the woman. Yeah. Which brings us to Cinderella. Rom-coms are often the more innocent person's story, the person who knows less, right? Yeah. Agreed? Yes. Uh, I don't want to say the woman, the girl, because of course, as in Love, Simon, it's not always a girl, nor does it need to be, but it's always the story of the innocent and how they shouldn't be able to triumph in the face of all this stuff that's Mm -hmm. stacked against them, but they do anyway. They do anyway. And what I liked about that moment on the plane, to go back to when you started to get mad at Nick for his concealment or his deliberate obfuscation of like how wealthy he is, is is that it is explained later on in the moment where she comes back from the bachelorette party and she was like, fuck, you know, like these people put a dead fish in my bed. And he says, I'm sorry, I didn't prepare you. I just wanted to be normal for a while. You're not buying it on your face, which I love. Like I wish that people could see you like because you are legitimately still angry at Nick. But it's a link back. It is, it is at the very least an attempt at an explanation as to why Nick did not fully prepare 
um, Rachel for when she went into the dragon's den? One of the things that we talked about, uh, I think before we ended the season of Show Your Work, uh, you talked about Crazy Rich Asians being a Cinderella story. And I said, oh, it is, but I hadn't seen it. And then after we saw it the first time, uh, you asked me about how, what I thought and how I saw it. And I said, it's going to be amazing for audiences in general because we've seen this story as a Kate Middleton story. And you said oh, to me… I lost my mind. Yeah. I lost my mind. Kate Middleton, the story we all saw play out in the press, is the story of a woman who maybe wasn't told as much as she should have been told about what she was in for, right? Yep. About what it was going to take, what it was going to entail, the press who were going to follow her. And this, to me, is that story. And almost, it's the princess and the pea, right, to really break it down. Uh, the heroine, the innocent, the whatever, has to suffer through what she doesn't know in order to be worthy of the prince's love. This is tale as old as time stuff, yes? Yes, good one. <laughs> the, here's the thing though, Elaine, when you're like, oh, he just wanted to be normal for a while, but there are so many sins of omission. And we're going to get to... Uh, all the glories of wardrobe and everything else in the next section of this podcast. But the biggest, most grievous error to me is the red dress that she wears all day when she's going to go to dinner with his grandma as though he, as though he didn't tell her, hey, maybe you'll want to get dressed for dinner with me at the hotel. Uh, before she goes out all day. She wore that red dress all day. I'm so mad at him. And I don't know, like, I think that, what did you, what did you just say a few moments ago? His boyness? Sure. Yeah. I, again, totally. His boyness. Like, Astrid picked up on it right away. At the party, she was like, did you warn her? Like, and he was like, oh, she'll be fine. Like, he was still that way. He was completely, like, floating at a level that was of oblivion, of, of that was as right now you are outraged about, as you should be. Because. But I love that you are. Okay, but here's the thing, though. Uh, and now I'm getting into a full psych 305 analysis. Now you're going to hate him as much as Michael. A little bit. But how old do we think that Nick and Rachel are? They're professors, yeah. so. No, no younger than 32. Sure, I sign off on that. I yeah. might go to 30 for prodigy status or whatever, but yeah, sure. Yeah. Doesn't he know enough by now to not be oblivious? Like, is that, again, is it extreme privilege? It is extreme or, privilege and, like, extreme privilege to be a son, a boy, period. But when you are the scion of a family like that, he has never been burdened by these details of other people's feelings. His mother is still dressing him. Do so, you believe? Yeah, I, I buy it. Do you believe that uh, Rachel is the first civilian uh, that Nick has ever dated? Uh, yeah, I do. Right? I mean, this we is... know that he's been with Amanda. Yeah, who's among this privileged group. That's right. Uh, An insider. Yeah, and maybe other people, friends of cousins or whatever, yes. right? Uh, you know… Araminta, who we meet in sweatpants and glasses, 
is That's a detail I love forever. She's also the heir to a very wealthy family, right? Like even the people around him are in this world, mm-hmm. which again brings us back to Will and Kate. Uh, that before her, he might not really have mixed with commoners at all. Nope. I guess you could make the argument, grudgingly, that he's so wealthy and above it all that he's never had to think about the petty concerns of what it would be like for a commoner. Never had to and deliberately, like, made to not to. I'm going to put an asterisk on it, but sure. Right. So we're heading into kind of our second segment here, which is the movie making, right? So we've established this was a rom-com for the ages. We loved it. It hit every beat. We're maybe not going to get here elsewhere, but God, the soundtrack kills me. Mm -hmm. So... When we get to the movie making and the craft of the movie, what were your favorite parts? Oh, um, okay. I loved Araminta's first scene at the airport. The level of familiarity for me in whom Araminta was and what she looked like, like that whole aesthetic, love that. That was deliberate down to the pajama bottoms and the glasses. Explain more. Why is it familiar? What does it mean? So here's a, we learn that she is tremendously wealthy, maybe even wealthier than Colin, right? Uh, sure. Yes. Her family owns a chain of resorts. Um, so she's super, super, super rich, but she shows up at the airport, not looking rich at all. She's wearing again, pajama bottoms and glasses. That is so Asian to the point where like, if you go for late night snacks, which is what they did. They went to the open market, food, like they went to open market food stands. Um, when, if you were to go to any like super Asian plaza, Asian area in your neighborhood here in Toronto, we call it like Richmond Hill and Markham. Those are the areas. If you go for noodles at 11 o'clock at night, which is commonly what we do, or even like one o'clock at night, we've done that too. Cause you know why after you play Mahjong or when your Mahjong rounds are over or you need a break from the Mahjong, you go to your like noodle cafe you have a bowl of noodles and you go back to playing mahjong, you're wearing pajamas. I guarantee you, you walk into Hong Kong, um, you, in Hong Kong, you walk into anywhere else, these 20-year-old, 25-year-old girls um, and boys will be wearing their glasses, no makeup, pajamas, that's it. And now talk to me like the non-Asian that I am in an atmosphere that is so obsessed with wealth and image and all the rest of it as we see in the rest of the movie – why is that okay? The pajama bottoms and wife, be, uh, the pajama bottoms and tank top and hair up and what? what? What does that signify? Well, they knew where they were going. Like they knew that they were picking them up at the airport and that Nick, because Colin's his best friend, would probably want to go eat and he'd want to go eat the open market. So uh, you don't need to wear Prada. That is what, you don't need to wear Prada. I mean, they are they are always understanding of how you dress in a certain situation. Like, I think that what we can, I think that what we can make a blanket statement on or what I would make a blank statement on is no matter where you are culturally, there is an understanding of rules in the upper class that all the upper class people understand themselves and keep to themselves. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. It, the, uh, the sort of, posh wasp equivalent that I've read about is often the wealthiest people are driving beat up Volvos as opposed to the 
whatever, Mercedes and BMWs that you expect, right? Yes. And, and all the rules that apply, they know them intimately. If we go for tea, this is what we need to wear. However, if we go hunting, this is what we wear. The dress code and the occasion and the matching of such are communicated among that class. So what I love about what you just said is that I asked you to elaborate for me and to underscore it. But in fact, if I didn't have you, the movie does it for me. And the movie does it for me when we go to meet Pecklin and her family, right? That's right. It's a regular day at their regular house and they are all done the fuck up to the nines. Like they are Versace'd. Right. They, <laughs> they are Versace'd and Versailles. Within an inch of yes. their lives. Every outfit, every piece of furniture, every everything is not one label, but labels on top of labels on top of labels. This illustrates the difference between Pecklin's family mm-hmm. and an Araminta or Nick yeah. or Colin family. Yes? And yes. And later on, like, if you've read the books, everybody who's read the books will know, like, that is what sets Kitty Pong apart. She just doesn't know. Kitty would have shown up to the airport in Prada. Right. Because you have your best stuff and you're going to see people. That's right. Because Kitty is not of that class. She hasn't moved a- She hasn't moved among these people ever or has just started to. She doesn't know the secret code. So I think that I assumed that wardrobe would be a huge part of this movie. Uh, I thought that, you know, people would talk about the dresses or the style trends that it created or whatnot. Uh, I don't think I expected that it would happen in the ways that it did, which is to say it was better than I imagined, but also more subtle. How did you feel about the clothing and the wardrobe? I thought the clothing and the wardrobe were like right on because I generally like, I feel like the crazy rich Asians for real in real life aren't exactly edgy dressers. They're expensive dressers. They're borderline tacky dressers. We had that. We had expensive and we had borderline tacky. They're not fashion forward. So I wasn't taking away fashion notes from this movie the way I was Ocean's 8, for mm-hmm. example. You know, like we came out of Ocean's 8 and you talked about Kate Blanchett's bangs, mm-hmm. I think it was. Mm-hmm. And we looked at the bags and the way the pants were worn. That is not this movie. This movie is like really as, um, I don't want to say basic bitch style, but like it's just expensive and pretty. But here's the other side of that. It would have been so easy in less skilled hands to make the labels the focus of all of what makes the crazy rich Asians so crazy, right? Um, You know, uh, that montage that we've always seen, probably in Pretty Woman, actually, of all the labels and where they're going, of all the shopping bags of all the whatever. I feel as though when we actually see some shopping happen, we never see a label attached, i.e. you would have to know to know, right? That's right. And also, I think that we're speaking to a certain class of person, crazy rich Asians. So remember, like Eleanor and Nick's family are old, old, old money. So they're not going to tackify 
their clothing with like logos all over it. That is what Kitty will become and, you know, and will not want to become and you'll have to like remove it from her. And Kevin Kwan does a really good job of this in the books. And, you know, the the movie couldn't be everything that the books were just because, you know, you can't in a movie be everything all at once. You would make it nine hours long. That's right. Ahem, Harry Potter. Yes. And so Kevin's books are satire. They're very satirical and he does address the judgy, mean, hierarchical attitudes among Asians when they talk about new money versus old money and what new money people are like and old money people are like. And for the most part, the crazy rich ass Asians who we see as like the drivers of the story in this movie are old money. They wouldn't labelize themselves up, down, all around. Pick Lynn's family, yes, and we did see that. But I know this because you and I have talked about this for a long time and because it is outlined in Kevin Kwan's books. I guess what I'm saying is that this movie in lesser hands uh, could have been a lot more obvious. The costume designer for Crazy Rich Asians is Mary E. Vogt, uh, V-O-G-T, if you're Googling, and there are all kinds of things that she does to subtly tell stories within the clothing. Obviously, Pecklin's family is huge and the things that she chooses for all of them are really obvious and, you know, there are there's style throughout and choosing exactly which shirt Nick puts on when, as you point out, his mother is dressing him. But, you know, there are subtler things. Rachel, when we meet her, kind of never has good style. It would be easy because she's your hero to think that she looks great and charming all the time. But I was kind of mad at her style often. And in fact, she only really looks stylish or able to work in this world uh, when she's being dressed by somebody else. When Rachel, the character, makes her own choices, Mm -hmm. it's always just a little bit wrong. Yeah. There's a scene after Rachel and... Uh, the whole family are making dumplings. Yep. And uh, she runs into Nick's mother on the stairs. And I read an article and her dress that she's wearing uh, is like a, a little sundress opposite Eleanor in like a green silk blouse and these sleek white trousers. Now, I read an article and so I know that the dress Rachel is wearing is Giambattista Valley and... I'm not trying to malign uh, Mr. Valley or his designs in any way. However, opposite what Eleanor wears, it looks cheap. Yeah. It looks off the rack. It's not because we know this, but that's skill mm-hmm. in design. That's amazing. It is amazing. And I also think that they were really clever in how they picked the wedding dress that Rachel wore or the dress she wore to the wedding versus the dress she wore to Ama's house the first time she met everybody. I think we would both agree the dress she wore to Ama's house was better. Like, like to our aesthetic. Better for me, a thousand percent. Yes. More striking, more flattering. Yes. Yes. Agreed. And would I choose it over the dress that she wore to Araminta and Colin's wedding for myself and for Rachel? Yes. Every time. 
Now, the thing, though, is that the dress that was chosen for her by committee Mm -hmm. in the movie for her to go to the wedding was the kind of dress that that society and all the aunties would like more. Right. Uh, It's Marquesa. (laughs) It's ethereal. It's floaty. I hate it. I hate the color. I hate the, what is that material? Organza? Chiffon. Chiffon. And uh, there may be some organza involved. I hate the gathering, the bows, the whatever. But that color, that style is going to impress the aunties is going to impress Eleanor's ilk. And that is not just like a style choice or a dress or whatever. That underscores the whole movie's theme, right? This is what Rachel will and can do to show that Nick and his happiness are more important than her own passion. That's right. Right? This she, is, go ahead. No, you go. But this is also what Araminta can do. At her wedding, because she's so rich and she's already there and no one can touch her and already everybody knows that this is a $40 million wedding and like Princess Intan is coming, she can do whatever the fuck she wants, which is why she's wearing gold leggings and that whatever it is to walk down the water, walk down the aisle to to meet Colin. To wade down the aisle. That is a next level privilege. It's when you're that rich and when you're that whatever then you can be, no, I don't have to please anybody. Right. But the journey that Rachel takes That's right. is from looking amazing for her own self or for Nick to sublimating her intrinsic gorgeousness in order to, you know, win the war, essentially. Yeah. Now, you made a really interesting clothing observation about Astrid. Mm-hmm. Um, Astrid, uh, of course, played by Gemma Chan, is gorgeous, is stunning. And, you know, they underplay it, but the idea is supposed to be that she's a shopper and a clothes horse and so forth. So we're expecting to be amazed by her. But like all of the really wealthy characters, uh, Astrid's always appropriately dressed at all times. Yeah. Right? Uh, And so... There is a scene that's on the beach at night during the bachelorette party when Rachel and Astrid, her one friend among all these asshole punks, uh, are burying the fish that was gutted on Rachel's bed in a threat to make her go away, right? Uh, And so they, you know, are tossing it in the sand and so forth. First of all, Astrid is as low-key as you could possibly imagine for, you know, for this kind of activity. She, there's an earlier, there's a crack about Rachel wearing like gap chic and Astrid almost is wearing gap chic. Yeah. But the reason I liked it so much is because if you go back and look at that scene, Astrid is wearing blue and white stripes. Yes. And that's not the first time that we see or hear about blue and white stripes in the movie. Almost in the first scene, when Rachel is packing with her mother and says, wouldn't this be nice to meet his family? Her mother says, oh, you know nothing about Asia. That's what Asians wear to a funeral, blue and white. Right? Yep. Not only are Rachel and Astrid burying a fish in the sequence where Astrid is wearing the blue and white stripes, it's also where she says for the first time, Michael is having an affair. She's also burying her Her marriage. marriage. It is so wonderfully 
well thought out. It is such a gift. And this speaks to anybody who might suppose that a costume designer is just a shopper of dresses. Mm -hmm. This is a really deep understanding of the script. And it probably was overall my favorite moment in the movie for that reason, because it's such a little Easter egg. It's subtle and overt. That's subtle. Um, And there are overt moments too, where it comes to like Astrid's style. There are probably two major scenes that Astrid has in terms of like how her clothing is. No, all of, I, in overt and subtle ways, every outfit that Astrid wears has been chosen, just like Rachel, everybody else has been chosen deliberately. When we first meet her, we are supposed to see her as Audrey Hepburn. That is a classic, timeless dress. She walks so straight and so perfectly into the like jewelry store. Everybody's looking at her. Glasses are on point. Yes. Everybody is supposed to know in that moment, she is the it girl of all of Asia. We know she has the jewelry collection that is the envy of everybody. She probably has fashion that is the envy of everybody. And yet, for the rest of the movie, really, her fashion is quite muted. We know she could have worn a better dress to Amma's house for the flower opening and to the wedding. She doesn't. Both of those dresses are rather like ordinary but nice. She doesn't ever look like shit, but she's never going to be the star because that's Astrid. She understands when she's going to be the big star and when somebody else um, needs the attention. Right, because she doesn't need to pull that focus, right? That's right. As opposed to some others who… Who need to because that's what they have. But then notice in her final scene or the major scene with Michael near the end of the film for the first time or… But then notice in the final scene that she has with Michael in the film, Astrid is wearing trousers. That is overt. It's a little bit clob you over the head. But she has a line about what it means to be a man… And, you know, an expression that it's not an expression that is like cool in 2018, but it is a known expression is the man wears the pants. Right. And I mean, I know what you're saying, that it's not super cool to reinforce that stereotype, but also, uh, you know, it's in a moment of dress for her, for Michael, it, it drives the point home. It is, especially in combination with the earrings she puts on right after that, It's designed to hurt him. Yeah. And it does. Because, of course, he's been worried this whole time that he's not a man and ultimately is proven right, that she doesn't need him. So this really seems to me to be segueing into casting, which has been such a big, big deal because, for example, uh, when you talk about Astrid not wearing a dress that's that exciting to the wedding. I think about the scene in the limo where we really get a look at the kind of jewel encrusted collar. And even though I'm thinking about the dress, what I'm also thinking about is the fact that Astrid, the character, is breaking down and losing her mind, but also is so practiced at being ready to be seen that she knows how to cry without messing up her makeup. Mm -hmm. Did you see that? Yes. Like she tilts her head in a very particular way that means she's not going to let the tears actually fall and run her mascara. I loved it so much. It was a small favorite moment. It's 
it's really, really well done on, on so many different levels because for those of us who've read the book, Astrid actually emerges as the star of the series. She's the one who, who goes through the most in terms of like um, where she has to travel internally to like get past struggles, to really reimagine who she is. For the most part, Rachel doesn't change. You know what I mean? Through the story. Yeah. And let's come back to that because there's something I love about that. But yeah. So knowing that though, and knowing how we are generally as like a collective society where girls like the Astrid's are the obsession, the it girls always emerge. I love her hair the most. I love her clothing the most. Like she is the most intriguing. Gemma didn't steal the movie. No, she did not. And they made sure of that. That's right. And and also, she she didn't not only not steal the movie, but she didn't even come close. This is Constance's movie. Constance and Michelle. Um, like, they 100% deliver the performances and the level of, like, I care about these people that you need. Which I think is really smart, number one, in the editing and in the writing and in the acting and the directing that they, that, that they managed to achieve that. Because I will say that in certain rom-coms, that doesn't happen. And you have one person overshadowing the other. Right. Or papering over the ills of another, you know. Uh, it's, it's a fine line. Sometimes you have a movie where, yeah, somebody can't act and everybody else is trying to carry it. Or you have one of those movies where it's too stacked and all these kind of highly paid actors are looking for their movement are looking for their moment on screen and maybe being bigger than they need to be in order to be seen, you know? Uh, some of the Woody Allen kind of name fest movies come to mind from back in the day. But this movie was a balance where I never felt that the names were... I, I never felt that the big names, such as they were, were stealing the focus, nor did I feel as though, you know, the bit characters weren't also really well played. There's a balance that is almost chemical that I really loved. And yet they laid enough of a groundwork for you to be able to move forward so that should there be a sequel, let's hope there is a sequel, um, none of this will come out of the blue. It's Astrid who gets the line at the dumpling wrapping where she says, oh, you mean like the tradition of Chinese parents guilting their children? She gets that line. Uh, yeah. You're, they're building character yeah. in the script. And the actors are obviously all up for the challenge, right? So let's talk a little bit about Constance Wu. The reason I want to talk about Constance Wu is that you say, oh, Constance Wu and Michelle Yeoh carry the movie. Um, but we probably expected that of somebody of Michelle Yeoh's character, uh, yeah. of Michelle Yeoh's caliber, right? Constance Wu is, uh, you know, a known television star and so forth, but hadn't had a role of this magnitude, of this attention yet. No, she's not had a role of this magnitude. She's never carried a film, a major motion picture. I think she's been in some independent films, but this is a major motion picture. And yet, she's not a full-on innocent, right? Like, if you are one of the two people who hasn't heard this, uh, Henry Golding, who plays Nick, uh, had never acted before. 
he was found because somebody saw him on a travel show. He was a host, whatever. He'd been on camera, but he'd never acted. So I think he was excellent, like, which is praise I don't usually give. But anybody who had never acted before and was that good was going to be like, oh my God, she was, she hadn't carried a major motion picture, but she's a well-known, experienced actress. So the level of expectation is high. Yes. And yet she is also someone who's coming into this opportunity in this movie, having to go head to head in several scenes against a legend. Right. So it was in the Time magazine feature that I sent to you that all of us have read, I think, of Constance in the yellow, like, furry jacket, where we find out that both of them had very strong opinions about how certain scenes would go, and it sounded like they were rewriting according to the actress's specifications. Like, Michelle was like, I don't want to say that, don't villainize my character, and Constance was like, no, no, I need to get this point across about my character, and she needs to stand up for herself this way. And behind the scenes and during production and and development, and it sounds like shooting, they were both so assertive where their characters were concerned, that the end product shows that kind of care. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, you know how we talked about uh, the rom-com tropes and things that you expect to see? Uh, you In a bad rom-com, the challenger, the other woman, the whatever, is not a threat, right? Yeah. In Crazy Rich Asians, Mm -hmm. the other woman, who is Nick's mother, is a threat. Yes. You're not worried about Amanda. You are legitimately worried about his mother, right? You're worried about her, and yet also at the same time, you side with her. Yeah. I mean, you understand her, although I would argue you don't understand her until really late in the game, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I guess my point is there is evenly matched. Yes. Ordinarily, if you told me that story about actresses saying, I don't want to say that, I'd be like, ugh, actresses. Yeah. But in this context, I really wanted to be breathless about what was going to happen right until the end. And they're such worthy adversaries for one another Mm -hmm. that, you know, it, it, I buy that the back and forth and the bartering that they were doing over the lines was important and made the movie's tension higher. And you know, all podcasts, we've been talking about rom-coms and comparing them to the the ones that we love, the ones that have stood the test of time. And in that sense, in that dynamic, that is Andy and Miranda, Marilyn Ann, Devil Wears Prada. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, it was deliberate that Miranda Priestley, yes, there were times when she was just a total cunt, but by the end of it, you're not, like, she is not a villain. No, she's a, she's somebody with texture and understanding. That's right. But 
Uh, we're dancing around the final scene, which I know you want to talk about at length, and I really want to get there. But it was in that final scene in the Mahjong Den when I realized that unlike The Devil Wears Prada, unlike all kinds of movies, Pretty Woman, all the ones that we've mentioned, Rachel never changes. In that final scene when they're playing Mahjong, uh, her accent is as flat and American as it's ever been. She has shown off that she can look classy at the wedding a few scenes earlier, but she doesn't show that off here. She doesn't need to. Mm -hmm. She is wearing a dress that, again, is probably a very famous designer, but looks like it came from Marshall's in comparison. She speaks in a flat way and is very uh, plain about who she is. She does not give a single concession to Eleanor. And I feel as though a less thoughtful actress might have let the sort of vague British accent that the rest of them have creep into her speech. Yes. Right? Yeah. Would have sort of said, well, I can play in the worlds that you do. Her enunciation would Mm -hmm. change. Her accent would change. Never happens for Rachel. Never. And it was one of my favorite moments. And it was also underscored by an apparently unscripted moment uh, that we'll get to from uh, the woman who plays Rachel's mother, who to me is the most undersung person in the whole cast. So good. And the point that you're making about the accent not changing is mirrored in the purpose of that scene. She is saying, I am a child of immigrants. You haven't accepted me, but look what I can do. Look what I have done. And now look what you owe me. So let's talk about the Mahjong scene. You have talked about Mahjong since I knew you. Long, I think, even before you were writing about it, you were telling me about it. And as long as I can remember, I it's been something that's in your vocabulary. And so when we saw the movie the first time, I thought to myself, I wonder if she feels like Mahjong is coming too late in the game. Uh, obviously, it has a lot of purpose and it's all very deliberate, but tell me about the inclusion of Mahjong at all. In fact, talk to me like I'm dumb. Why do we need Mahjong in this movie? Well, okay, so for those of us who know the book, that scene, in fact, like almost the whole third act doesn't exist in the book. Right. So that was purposed just for the movie. Because the book is uh, a trilogy, but also a... Uh, almost a triptych, right? Like yeah. three stories that go together but aren't to be continued. That's right. And the movie needed to end. That's right. So this is not a scene that happens in the book. This is something that they specifically wrote. So they made a decision, where are we going to have the showdown? And this is what I love. You settle scores on a mahjong table. This is where... It's instantly recognizable to anybody who's grown up in that certain community. You have a score to settle. It's going to be here. And listen, I mean, it's happened before in movies where scores are settled at the poker table. Scores are settled um, like on the golf course. Um, in Like one-on-one, you play basketball with somebody. You've seen it before. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, but I think what maybe is not as much a part of the movie-going vocabulary is that mahjong is, and cards are as well, uh, is a game of skill. Yes? Yes. It's a game of skill. It's a game of strategy. It's not just what's going to come up next. It is you're thinking through every card you pick up and every card you discard because you're wondering, oh, 
Um, I mean, how detailed do we want to get here? Well, uh, let's get detailed. Let's, okay. uh, you know, I think that any audience, you and I talked about this, about the Mahjong scene as it appears on screen. And uh, I didn't have any trouble understanding what's going yeah. on, despite never having been anywhere near a Mahjong table okay. or den. Okay. I got it. Because they shot it for everybody to get it. That's right. There are some long shots. There are some lingering moves. We know what's going on, and we understand what Rachel's doing when right. she shows her her cards. What's that move called? When flip. you flip, you when flip, you flip your all your tiles. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when she gets up and leaves. Yeah. I mean, that's a, you know. Okay. We get what that is. So we so know what's going on. A skilled and experienced Mahjong player, like I haven't played in a little bit, but you give me a few days. And when I'm playing... For when I'm playing and 100% whenever my mother is playing, she will be able to tell you probably down to like two or three cards what other cards, tiles, every other player is holding. She's a card counter. Yes. And the point of Mahjong is you're supposed to count the cards. You're supposed to pay attention. It is illegal in blackjack and like all casino games in Vegas but in Mahjong, you are supposed to count. How many tiles are there in play? Like in chess or in checkers or whatever, uh, there's a given number, right? A deck of cards has 52. How many tiles? Uh, okay, so nine times three is? 27. 27 times four is? More than I can do in my head. <laughs> so I'm counting that way because there are three, um, there are three suits in Mahjong. And then a set of wild cards. So each suit has nine tiles, and each tile is multiplied by four. There are four tiles of every tile. 27 times four is 108, and I would like to thank the Ontario Education System. Yeah. Uh, I probably should be okay. able to do that a little So quicker. that's 108, so that represents the three suits. Then you've got your wild cards, and your wild cards are the four directions. So Tong Lam Sai Bak which is east, south, west, north. Each of those cards has four. So that's four times four. 16. 16. I like that you're having me do all the math here. Zhong fat ba. So those are three more wild cards, and they each have four. So that's 12. So 12 and 16 is 28 to add to your 108. So we're up at, uh, you know, a good number. And uh, then 136 or so. And then you have flowers. So you have uh, four. <laughs> There's a lot of flowers. So you have four flowers um, times. Anyway, it, the end result is 144. Okay. So between your flowers and your wild cards and your suits. Right. Which is. Uh, and you stack them in 18 mm -hmm. times two times four. Right, so 36 a piece because there's always four players. Yeah. Never 12, never five. There's always four players. Yes. Got it. Okay. That was Mahjong. Okay, so, and it's important because this is as common as what? As apple pie, as teenagers eating on the phone, or as teenagers talking on the phone in 80s movies. Like, how intrinsic is Mahjong to uh, a story that takes place in Asia? It's like when you have elders, they're going to be playing Mahjong. 
Is there like a, a movie going equivalent that we see all the time? Like what's the, is it people strolling in the park? Like is it? Uh... <laughs> um. Oh God, I don't know. I don't know if there's an equivalent. Like I, I'm not sure if I'm just not thinking of it right now or if it's just something that is so culturally specific. Right. But the, so, you know, they went to a mahjong den. Um, it was pretty professional, like professionally run. So you have those sort of your street mahjong dens. But for instance, my grandmother used to run one of those out of her apartment. Right. So instead of, how many tables would you say it was in that scene? Like, like thir- I don't know, 25? Uh, I'd say, yeah, closer to 13, 14, maybe uh, okay. four people each. Blah, so blah, my blah. grandmother would run, a, like her mahjong den was like four or five tables in right. the apartment. A Tiny f- apartment. Yeah, of four people each. That's right. Right. And you take like a tax from every table. Of course. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. So when you do that, there are people who just go there habitually and then you have scores that you want to settle. Sometimes it's over money, but sometimes it's over, like, whatever. Like, I don't know, you stole my parking space, you stole my husband, you stole my wife. <laughs> like, whatever it may be. Would the movie have been complete? Even though the book is written as it's written, would the movie have been complete without Mahjong? You're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get that level of honest conversation in my mind, if it's not at the mahjong table. At tea, you would just be sitting across from each other with nothing to do with your hands, and it wouldn't have allowed for that kind of honesty of conversation. They, like, pardon the pun, they laid their cards down. Why does mahjong allow that? What is it about mahjong that means you can be honest? Because that's something you've said before, yeah. Uh, what is it that means that's where you can do that? Because you're camouflaging your hand. So you're spending a lot of your deception in the gameplay. So it's shit talking is what you're saying. That's right. Got it. <laughs> that's right. And so are there other elements to the movie that are uh, completely essential that I might have missed not knowing them had I not had you sitting beside me talking about them? Look, when you're, to go back to the Mahjong, the final point here is that, listen, when we're going to talk about a, a westernized movie that involves Mahjong, you can't not bring up the Joy Luck Club. And if you remember, in the Joy Luck Club, those women were getting pretty intimate over Mahjong. That's when they were sharing their feelings. They were uh, talking about their worries. This is, there's a magic that happens in an intimacy when things are right and wrong on a mahjong table that lends to a certain kind of communication, especially in a culture that doesn't encourage open communication. We are a closed culture or historically have been. We don't really talk about feelings. But on the mahjong table is where feelings emerge. Right. And there are so many parts of the movie where things are happening in parallel. Uh, It's just good writing. I think the script was really excellent. Uh, But one of the reasons that I loved the Mahjong table is it because it allows for us to see, oh yeah, they aren't that different. So for example, we've talked about the two different perspectives on the blue and white shirt. Uh, We also see Ama and Carrie, Rachel's mother, at two different times say, family means you don't have to say you're sorry. 
which is something that, uh, you know, I've, I've heard from you as well, but it's something that is, they couldn't be more different. Their families and what they stand for mm-hmm. couldn't be more different, but we see the repetition on both sides so often. And it, I really liked the way that that openness at the table allows Rachel to say, everything you have, I got. Yeah. I have the strength. I have the, you know, the brains. I have the forethought, yeah. as I'm showing you in Mahjong, and the sort of fortitude to walk away. There's nothing that you can say that I don't actually have. And you're right, that we've waited all movie for that moment. And, you know, not to be too cutesy about it, she shows her work Mm -hmm. rather than tells. She doesn't say, I'm this, I'm that, I'm blah, blah, blah. She's showing it the whole time. Yeah. Um, As you say, she's kind of shit talking, but she's proving it in the tiles. She's proving it in the tiles and even the actual selection of the tiles shows the point. And it's not a detail that people who don't play Mahjong would miss. It doesn't take anything away from your experience. But they brought on a Mahjong consultant, which, okay, come on. Like, Mahjong consultant, why don't you just talk? Like, why don't you just say you brought in a gambler? <laughs> There's no such thing as a fucking Mahjong consultant. Now it's there is. Like, Maybe you know, this is going to be an industry. P.S. If this is an industry, I would like to be hired as a Mahjong consultant. Everybody listening. Well, we'll get to that. Thank you. Anyway, so the Mahjong consultant supposedly designed this game. And how they designed it is, um, how do I talk about this? There are certain qualities of hands that you can play and build when you're playing Mahjong. And they rank in points. If you win with a higher quality of hand, everybody has to pay you more. And if your quality of hand is shit, then we pay you pennies. This is the equivalent of a straight beats a flush or whatever. That's yes? right. Rachel was building a hand that was much, much higher in points than Eleanor's. I love this. Are you telling me that Eleanor, even though she thought she was going to win, was not putting in enough effort because she didn't think she had to try to make a better hand to beat Rachel? Well, what was interesting is that at least the way the film was edited and I understand that they hired a Mahjong consultant, but it's one thing for a Mahjong consultant slash gambler to design your game. It's another when you send the film into the edit suite and the edit suite, the person, the editor is like editing through what the footage is. So I'm not sure if this changed in editing, but, and if it was deliberate in editing, but what happened was, At the beginning of the hand, Eleanor's hand had the potential to be of a higher value. By the time she won, her hand was bullshit. It was the lowest scoring pointed hand that you could build in Mm -hmm. Mahjong. Okay. She won with a cheap hand. So I wonder and I kind of hope that the storytellers were saying over the course of the game, Eleanor got more petty. Just like in life, she started out as Rachel. She was the one who wasn't accepted. Mm -hmm. Amma told her she wasn't good enough. And she had to work to earn Amma's trust and confidence. And she still didn't really have it. So it chipped away at her value system. And 
to the point where in the end, she didn't go for a big hand, even though she had the building blocks for a really good hand at the beginning. Had the skills. Had the skills, but also the actual tie. Yeah, sure. She's dealt the right cards. She was dealt the right cards at the beginning. She just ended up taking shortcuts. Whereas Rachel maintained the integrity of her hand without going for the cheap win. Look, I am nobody's mahjong consultant or even like mahjong ball boy. But to me, that is such a crucial story point. That says to me and underscores the scene so well, Eleanor has underestimated Rachel. Eleanor has not put in the effort that Rachel requires. She thought that Rachel was a cheaper, easier, more flimsy opponent to get rid of, right? That's the movie. I have to believe that's deliberate because that is gorgeous. And I, I'm glad we're talking about this. I want people to listen to this. I am thinking of even writing that last part out. Other people have analyzed the Mahjong game online and they've talked about the tiles that were used and specifically the tile that Rachel discards to make a winning hand for Eleanor. It is the eight of bamboo. That's one of the suits. One of the suits is bamboo. And to those of us who don't know, it looks like uh, two M's, mirror reflected. That's right? right. Yeah. So the the eight of sticks, we call it, like in my family, we call it the eight of sticks. But the eight bamboo, she actually picks up the eight bamboo, Rachel does. It's called a demol, which is a self-win. That is the move that is valued the highest in Mahjong. If you win by someone else discarding the card, then you get paid less than if you win when you pick up the card yourself. You almost win by double. So I know you love this shit, so I'll just explain it to you. When someone else discards your card, the person who discards the card to you has to pay, let's say, $10 to you, depending on how much you're playing for. Sure. And the other two people typically have to pay $5. Sure. When you pick up your winning card yourself, everybody has to pay you $10. Right. Right? So you always, like, that is the ultimate thing is when you demod, when you pick up yourself, everybody wants that. So she demod. She was calling for the eight bamboo. The eight bamboo was her winning card. Instead of winning, she discarded it and gave Eleanor the win. Right. So... They designed it that way to hammer home the point, and people have written about that, but they haven't analyzed the hands themselves and the quality of the hands themselves as a representation of the quality of the behavior of each woman. So I keep thinking each question will be my final question, but I have one more. Uh, It was very clear, as I said to you, watching, never having seen or sniffed anything close to Mahjong, what was going on. I get it. Much like if in a poker scene in a movie, the ace comes up, even if you know nothing about poker, the way they shoot it, the way they linger on it, you get it. This is the important card, right? Here's my question. In the game that was laid out, could she have won with a different card? They said she was calling for that and then it comes up for her. The reason I say that is because to those of us who know nothing about Mahjong, of course, they look like two different M's, right? Which to me, I immediately go, oh, if you look at it this way, it's M for me. If you twist it the other way, it's M for mother, for his mother. This way I win, M, 
this way she wins. Right. It was already obvious because of the symmetry, but the me and the mother, and they look like M's, and that's a very, like, yeah. Greek character-centric uh, attitude, or that's a very Arabic character-centric attitude, but it was an extra level of uh, subtle skill in the way they shot it. So would another tile have done as well, or did it have to be that one? Probably the way we're laying out this theory, that's why they designed it. But Rachel built her hand for two cards to win for her. She was holding a six and a seven bamboo. So she had an open-ended win. She was calling then for the five or the eight. Got it. Either end. Yeah. But the eight is obviously better because of the way it looks and all the rest of it. And sometimes that's one of those moments of movie magic that as a writer, director, whatever, you don't know is coming. Yeah. But when you find it in the moment, you go, oh, we couldn't have planned this. Yeah. So joy overall. I wa- I appreciated that it was designed open-endedly, like that she was calling for the five and the eight, but the eight came and blah, blah, blah. Because as we learn from the opening scene, she's a skilled gambler. Like she understands, she, her ga- game theory is her whatever, specialty, right? Right. So she's never going to build a hand where she doesn't have options and roots. You can build a hand where you're only going to be calling for one card. Remember, there are only four cards in that deck of the no, card that you need. No, I don't remember that, right? but okay, sure. Like, if she was only calling for the bamboo eight, she only would have had four chances to win. If you're calling for five and eight, you have eight chances to win. You increase your, you increase your potential. Sure, but… If she had gotten the five, yes. it would not have been such an no. enigmatic looking tile sure. exactly. for us to see on That's screen. right. Great. But also well written because she's a game theory person and she wouldn't have like cornered herself in that way building a hand. It works on a lot of levels. Yes. So earlier you said that you had been anticipating this movie for about 30 months, uh, which is very specific. That adds up to two and a half years. I do not appreciate the amount of math. Uh, in this podcast. Uh, And, you know, you've been talking about it for almost as long, right? Yes. Uh, And so I kind of wanted to talk about the elephant in the room when we're talking about this movie, which is that you have been talking about writing about uh, this movie, what you hoped it would be, how it could be, what you fantasized the cast would look like, Uh, For a really long time. Yep. Right? Yep. Like, uh, this has always been, what, a hobby, a preoccupation, Mm -hmm. or whatever? I think that's just like, I I think that we do this. We fantasize about what people are going to look like when we have stories that we want told. But in particular, my fantasies were even more rich and, like, needy, if that's the right word, because… We're casting people we don't typically see and and who we don't even know, like, are out there. Right, because there were so many new faces who were not known That's movie right. stars because yeah. of, you know, endemic casting bias right. over the years, right? Like, you know that scene in La La Land where Emma Stone goes to her audition and she shows up and everybody looks like her? Right. I can't even imagine, like, a scene like that in Hollywood. You know what I mean? Right. Or I could, but they're all there to play, uh, you know, the two-line part. Correct. Right. So you had a lot of ideas and hopes about casting a lot of things that you talked about uh, 
you know, and we always hope whenever we hear about a movie, I hope some of these come true. I hope some of them don't, right? Yep. Suffice it to say you're pretty happy with the casting, yes? Yes. Like we've talked a lot about the undescribed hotness of many of the actors. Uh, Henry, I think, like after seeing it now, Henry Golding, like, I, I think he, it feels like this is so cliche, but like he leapt out of the book. Yeah, no, he was, he exceeded everyone's expectations. Yes. He was spectacular. Uh, and there are all kinds of characters who we, who, yeah, I think on lots of fronts exceeded mm-hmm. who we hoped they'd be. Yeah. Like, but you know, I think your hopes were not just idle. And I think this because I know this because uh, the other day when you were tweeting about uh, the Time Magazine article that you referenced earlier with Constance Wu appearing in yellow, uh, somebody replied to you on Twitter. Uh, it was John M. Chu, the director of the movie, who said, uh, love you. Thank you for your relentless support and love for our movie throughout the process. I mean, you basically cast this movie, let's be honest. That's really nice. Like, I, I, I'm going to get as emotional as I can on the podcast here, but that was really meaningful for me um, to be acknowledged, to be part of, like, the junket and the promotion of the film and really to have been writing about it this way and to, like, to hear everybody's feedback. And a lot of people have been tweeting and texting me, like, anytime they see an article about Crazy Rich Asians, they think of me. That is an amazing association. Um, but yes, to your point, 30 months, maybe even longer, have like right on it from the moment I read the book and then to have John be like, you basically cast the movie. I don't think I cast the movie, but I have been writing about every stage of casting before the casting, who I was hoping for, the fact that they had an open casting call. You know, maybe in some way, like I helped like, increase the awareness so that people who may not have auditioned and thought of themselves for this film thought of themselves. Well, or created ideas in the mind of casting directors, you know, because I think, uh, I think that what we're looking at here is, uh, it takes somebody who knows both worlds, who knows the world of the book and the world of entertainment to be able to imagine who already exists, who could live in these roles. I think that to me is something that probably not a lot of people share. Um, You have a working knowledge of Asian cinema that I think a lot of people can't touch. And I think that's what he was getting at, right? Yeah, maybe. And, you know, maybe he was also getting at the fact that like, I I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about this because it's, it's still like not embarrassing, but it's still it, it's bringing up a lot of nerves and memory. Like I auditioned for this film. I mean, just go <laughs> ahead and drop the bomb. My lead in, just so everybody knows, my lead in was going to be, uh, you know, but there's one role that didn't go quite the way you thought it might. Uh, and we were going to play in that realm. But let's just go ahead. Sorry, you What? Well, yes, I I think that people who've been reading the blog for long enough know that I was, it was a running joke that I wanted to play Kitty Pong. And it was a running joke between me and Kevin as well. 
Whenever I interviewed him. Sorry, first name basis, Kevin. <laughs> Who's Kevin? <laughs> Kevin Kwan is the author of Crazy Rich Asians. Right. Yes. Uh, and so if you are the one person who is listening to this very spoilery podcast before having seen the movie, Kitty Pong is… Kitty Pong is the… She shows up, what, in two or three scenes? She is the, like, not very classy actress who's dating Alistair, and by the end of the movie, she hooks up with Bernard Tai. Right. And we know that she used to do porn, although not by the time we meet her on screen. That's right. The rumor is that she used to do porn. The way that the rich, rich Asians see her is like someone cheap and crass and slept her way into this world. Right. How about that? And this really appealed to you. I know that girl. Right. (laughs) And for this, you were like, I will be an actor. Yes. And Put it this way, when the joke started, because I interviewed Kevin very early on in the book tour for the first book, he hadn't yet come out with the second book, and that's when we got to know each other. I fell in love with Kitty, and I did not expect, because Kevin didn't tell me how the story would unfold, that Kitty would become, like, a bigger character. So I'm like, I could play this, because you don't, I didn't think you'd really have to have an acting career. It's like two scenes in the movie. I you would just have say to act that cheap. Yeah, but even back when you were first talking about him, as you say, before the second book came out, the idea of a movie was, uh, uh, you know, not a twinkle in somebody's eye yet. No, like he hadn't sold the book rights yet. He was working on selling the book rights. So it started off as a joke. Then when the book rights were sold, before the second book came out, or right before the second book came out, I was still on about it. And then it just became like a continuation of a running joke. And then they started casting for the movie. And I said to myself, you know what? Like, I've been, <laughs> I've been joking about this. How many times in your life do you get to like just do something literally crazy that makes you uncomfortable? You just want to be part of something so bad. Duanna, you knew about this. You like… Are we? Are you ready to go into this part of the story yet? Oh, I'm ready, but I'm I'm playing two roles here. I'm trying yes. to be the person who draws out your story. Yeah. And yes, then I will admit to my part in the caper. Yeah. Right. I have no aspirations of being an actor, but I just wanted to be part of this movement so badly in any way possible that I was like, why not? I'm just going to try. I'm not going to go for the fucking Rachel role, obviously, but I'm going to go for the kitty role. And so last summer… Um, there's an agency that we've done some work with and they have a casting division. So I called them up and I was like, this is a fucking one-off. You will not be sending me on auditions for every goddamn thing out there, but I need you to get me an audition for Crazy Rich Asians. And we should clarify that even in the last handful of years, things have changed. It used to be that that would mean, oh, I want to see the casting directors, fly me to a room, do a thing, or I'll fly myself to a room and do my audition. But Many, many, many auditions at lots of high levels now are self-tapes, as they're called, which in non-jargon means you film yourself on an iPhone. So basically, every 11-year-old on YouTube yeah. is self-taping all the time. And remember, for this movie in particular, John M. Chu had an open casting call. He put it in on YouTube. He was like, tape yourself. We want to see it. Send it here. Like everybody was doing it. Right. But even outside of that special circumstance, self-taping is a thing that people do for an audition. Yeah. So the agency was able to like contact the casting director. They sent us the sides. Yeah. The sides are what you send to an actor to audition, which means 
just their scenes, often out of context. Uh, and there's no real explanation. If there's something you're not supposed to read, they just put a big Sharpie X through it. Yeah. It's not very sophisticated. Uh, and often if you're watching casting, as I often am on the other side, you can watch 25 people do the same four lines, for example, and you know right away. And the sides were two scenes, two scenes that show up in the movie. The first scene where Kitty shows up, they're on the set of a movie and she's a terrible actress, that scene, and the scene where Oliver dances with her because Eleanor orders him to uh, like get her away from Alistair and you know, right before Oliver sends her to towards Bernatai. Right. Um, so you and I and Yasik got together at my house. Yasik operated the iPhone and you directed me. I mean, sure. I certainly offered advice and I was your reader, which means when you're doing a scene, when one person is auditioning, uh, uh, so Kitty Pong does her scenes with Alistair uh, in the beginning and later on with Oliver you know, who are not going to be there at your audition. Uh, So you need somebody to read opposite you. I cannot tell you how many times, regardless of what the role is, the person reading opposite the actor is their mom, um, (laughs) who does not appear on camera, but says the words so that the auditioner has the right timing and cadence and whatever. And that's what we did. That's what we did over and over again. We, you also styled me, like we, we picked, we had three dresses to pick from. Well, no, if we're doing this, let's tell the truth. I had several dresses to bring you because you didn't have anything that was going to be anywhere near trampy enough, uh, <laughs> booby enough. <laughs> Every dress you own is. It's a sack. A sack, uh, by design. <laughs> Uh, And while I don't think I spend my day in, you know, bandage dresses, uh, they do occasionally have a little more uh, form And also, like, you wear more color. Everything I wear, as you know, is grays, neutrals, blacks. Right. I don't have much, like, kitty color. And this is the thing. This is where the intersection of character and wardrobe exists again. Elaine or Lainey doesn't wear color. Kitty would never wear anything but, right? that's right. So you wound up in a red dress. Yep. With a full deep neckline. Booby. What we thought was booby. Makeup. Makeup. More makeup than I normally wear. Yeah, I think you had a full lip going on. Yep. Um, And we did the thing. And we, like, you know, had, I don't know, several versions. We narrowed it down to the two scenes and the version we liked. And we sent it off. Obviously, I didn't get the part, but I remember Duanna thinking, okay, I'm not an actor, so that wasn't great acting, but I'm not totally embarrassed by what I did. Right. Having said that now, we made some errors. I mean, here's the- Or here's what we now know they were looking for, which we didn't do. Here's the acting parlance or casting parlance, which is- uh, and as again, as I'm often on the other side watching actor tapes, it's not that one person is better than another. It's that, and I quote, they went another way. <laughs> no, like, listen, I don't think any of, like, the three of us, you, me, yes, like, I don't think any of us harbored any illusions that I would be a front runner. 
People out there listening may not believe this, but you are a good, good friend of mine. You know I don't want to be an actor. I just wanted to be part of it. I just wanted to be in it. Yeah, I you just, wanted to be there. Had yeah. they offered you, uh, you know, a, a a chair on set just to see what was That's happening. That's right. Yeah. And I, this was the like the best way that I knew how to be in it without <laughs> like a commitment, right? Or like skill. Um. So no, I, we, the, the things that we did the decisions, the creative decisions that we made that didn't work out was, it turns out I needed to be in tighter clothes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if you don't think I'm going to lord it over your head for the rest <laughs> of our natural lives, you are wrong. Yes. Yes. Because like, uh, the dress that we chose for everybody, like one day I'm going to post this. Um, I'm not sure when, not with this podcast, I don't think. One day I will post this, was like booby on top, but it was still like Lucy A-line on the bottom. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a flirtiness to it, right? That's right. Yeah, there's no flirtiness to the kitty pong on screen. No, yeah. She, she leaves zero to the imagination. Yes. And I will say, I believe, and I could be wrong, like we might have to look the sides back up, but I thought that the instruction that we got was that Kitty spoke in accented English. Yeah, I think that's true. And so I did my audition, you know, with your direction, under your direction. Don't blame me for this shit. <laughs> in, accented, in accented English, in yeah. a Hong Kong accent. Right. Um, and uh, as we saw in the movie, Kitty doesn't have an accent. Well, you know. Many uh, characters do. Many characters do. I, I, I thought she had a bit of one, or I was projecting that she had one, maybe. Uh, but, you know, one of the reasons that you said, oh, I know this character, I can do this, is because you knew what a Hong Kong accent was. Mm -hmm. You weren't doing sort of a mid-range, vague accent, as you sometimes see in movies. Yeah. You knew right away what that was. Yes. Maybe the actress that they ultimately chose, and you've alluded to the fact that the Kitty Pong role changes and takes on more if there should be uh, second and third movies, because the second and third books see her in a different light. Maybe the actress that they chose didn't feel comfortable with that accent. They thought they didn't need it. She was better when they didn't have it. Um, and yet, I'd like to believe there's a little of your spirit in her. But we're telling the story because there is a work component here. And the work component here is I, for the first time, understood what it is like to audition, what the tapes are. I learned, like, what sides are. Didn't really know, like, the sides thing, you know. Um, and... It gave me an appreciation of like how vulnerable you have to be when you are trying to make that happen. Absolutely. And you have to be all the way there and all the way in it and then forget about it. I know yes. that you sent off that tape, fussed about whether you had the right like file format or whatever, and then kind of forgot it because it wasn't really going to change uh, life one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, now imagine doing that, I don't know, eight or nine mm -hmm. times a week uh, and maybe hearing nothing about all nine tapes, yeah. all nine wardrobe and accent and whatever choices, uh, and hearing nothing and doing that for years on end. It is a really, yeah, it's an underrated tough thing to do. Yeah. And the second work component that for me anyway um, here is that Sometimes you have to put yourself in a scary place. You Like, listen, I don't want to be an actor, but I did want so badly to be part of something that 
I really put myself out there, maybe in some people's eyes, as a fool. Like, you know, there's a tape floating around in, in Hollywood somewhere in casting agencies where I am, like, in a Hong Kong accent trying to be Kitty Pong. It's tremendous. Like, I, and I am someone who has, like, lots of secondhand embarrassment. You know, I'm generally, like, not that person. And yet, that is how badly I wanted to be part of something, that I was like, I need to take this risk. I don't regret it for a second, and I find it, I find that I learned a lot from it. And I feel like our podcast is about encouraging you out there and reminding us that we, we have to try new things. And to show your work means show it. It's not, no work is great if it is curled up and hidden in your garret, right? To be kept privately to your own brilliance. I have two points that I want to respond to there. The first is that when you say, oh, maybe I made myself a fool or whatever, I don't believe that you or any actor who doesn't get the point, I don't believe that you or any actor who doesn't get the part makes a fool of themselves. Uh, It's almost never happens. Honestly, when you're watching all these tapes, there's nobody that you're like, this asshole. It's just not the case. And because people who work in film absolutely know what it takes to do that over and over again. It's really brave and it's really exciting. I would never think uh, that you should think anything other than there were a lot of us and one ekes out the others. The second thing is that given that this is a bonus episode of Show Your Work, not all the same patterns are the same. And so I really did think we might get through an episode without invoking Hamilton. But of course... (laughs) But of course, (laughs) you saying, I really, really, really wanted to try is exactly, I'm not throwing away my shot, Mm -hmm. right? It's the same thing. And I will spare you the comparisons of Hamilton, the production from Crazy Rich Asians, the production. I said I had two points, but I have a third. I still really enjoy thinking of Kitty Pong as your spiritual sister. And my great joy is that the last time we saw this movie, uh, when it was your third viewing, uh, right at the very end, just as the soundtrack is swelling out to the credits and we can't hear anybody else saying anything, as Nick and Rachel are kissing, Kitty is kind of in the frame. And I said, did you hear what she said? And you said, no, what did she say? And it was my great joy to be able to tell you that she said, make babies, make babies. Perhaps nobody would get as much happiness from that Kitty Pong line as you would. Yes. Make babies, make babies. Last question. Uh, uh, You know, people used to buy like commemorative editions of movies they loved or whatever. I have a, a West Wing box set with a presidential seal on it. What is going to be the... How are you going to like keep and commemorate Crazy Rich Asians in physical form? Like, you're going to get by, like, a framed movie poster? What are you doing? Well, it's funny you ask me this because, like, you haven't seen my Crazy Rich Asians merch, have you? Uh, not in real life, no. Okay. Yeah. So, like, they, for marketing purposes, they gave out to the press, like, Crazy Rich Asians hats, chopsticks, and slippers. <laughs> you will, for sure, see those slippers come out at some point. 
Right. You're bringing them to every hotel we ever go to. That's is what right. You're saying. That's right. God, this was fun. I wish I could watch it for the first time again. But as you say, I think it does keep getting better each time you watch it. It really does. Just like to all the boys I've loved before. Um, but another podcast for another time. You know what I want to do is I think that um, for my birthday this year, your gift to me is you are going to start taking mahjong lessons from me. Oh, God. I mean, uh, no, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that sounds great. Oh, no, no. And then you're going to feel tortured because remember, I have to teach you, Duanna. <sighs> Who <laughs> is going to be the third and fourth? Because if it's Yasik, I'm not playing. No, God. He, like, he's seen it so many times. He's been around Mahjong. He still doesn't fucking understand. Um, but no, we will find a third and a fourth. Might be Sasha. I look very much forward to this. Also, uh, your birthday uh, happens in and around the time that we're going to return with the official start of the new season of the podcast. So I'll be able to tell everybody all about your lecturing and hectoring in service of your birthday. Um, in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us, La. <laughs> we will be back in the fall with more episodes of Show Your Work. We love hearing from you and definitely want to hear what you thought of the movie and how many times you've seen it. Have a great rest of your summer. Keep showing your work. We'll be back soon. Bye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.